You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Running a nursery business is no walk in the park. It can be a lonely path to walk and there are a bunch of traps to trip you up on every step. Rain Gibson is a horticulture advocate and business consultant that helps nursery businesses level up day in, day out, and he helps us understand what it really takes to get ahead in this game. I'm not about to start a nursery business, and maybe you aren't either, but don't miss this episode because there's a lot of wisdom that Rain's about to drop that can help us along our own journey, including leadership, communication, branding ourselves, whether that's business branding or just your own personal branding as well as technical aspects of running a business and developing a business. Whether you have ambitions of starting your own business, you want to be a better leader, or you just want to get into the mind of what it's like to be successful beyond just being a good operator, stick around to the end of this episode, which is one of the longer interviews that I've ever recorded, even if you have to pause it and then come back a few times. Welcome to the show, Rain. Thank you. Glad to be here. It's going to be fun, man. Look... I guess I think we're going to be talking a little bit about production nurseries and retail nurseries here. So how did you get started in the industry to get, to begin with? Yeah. So how was growing? I grew up in the nursery business uh, since I was 10. Uh, my family has started a wholesale production nursery in the middle of Louisiana. It was a, a small nursery that was originally designed to supply our top customers, we had a brokerage business and then that grew, man, the, uh, where we were was a town of like 200 something nurseries in this little bitty town. And we were originally just doing our own customers, but then the, our neighbors that are also growers wanted to grow a product or wanted to buy our product. So then we started expanding and expanding and expanding and, and, um, that's where, you know, I learned to, to be a part of it because it was a family business. So every weekend, afternoons, hot summers, cold winters, you know, that's, that's where I was, you know, it was get to work in the morning, get dropped off with a crew work a day and then get picked up and, and go home. Mm-hmm. So it was a, it was a long time coming. So my first job was busting up Griselma's grass with a machete in the back to create the next crop of one gallons. So for me, it was, you know, part passion and part an agricultural upbringing. I see. And so since then, you've actually started a business called Taproots. Can you tell us a little bit about what businesses you work with and how your, how your background has helped you to start this business? Yeah. So growing up in the nursery business, um, man, I got to tell you, I hated it. It was hot. <laughs> it was cold. And I swore I would never be in the nursery business, but when it came time to figure out what I was going to do after high school, I realized that, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at this. I've done everything there is to do. I've got the, the know-how I've, I've done every job. I've pulled trailers. I've done production. I've done pulled weeds. I've loaded orders. I've talked to customers. So I'm going to pursue this. So mm-hmm. I went to Louisiana state university. I got a degree in horticulture. And what that did was help me learn the, the why behind the how. So I learned why we trim plants this way and why this fertilizer works best for this type of plant and the soil complex and, and all the fun stuff. 
And after I graduated, I came back to the family nursery with the the fire to bring that business to the next level and compete nationally with some of the the big boys. Mm. So for me, it was it was really tough because I was held responsible for this huge task of developing the nursery. And I was always looking for resources to help me with this. I looked for books, look for textbooks, uh, podcasts, audio books, um, mentors, and often I found fell short. Um, there's a surprising lack of technical knowledge on how to build nurseries and how to build green industry businesses. Uh, so that's where this came about. You know, I was responsible for writing my own book of business. And so I, I looked for every resource possible and applied it to our business and was successful at growing that business. So it, and that's where this business, that's where Taproot started was from having to write that business and then working with other businesses. Uh, you know, it got to the point where a lot of other nurseries were calling me and saying, Hey, how did you do this? Or, well, where did you, where'd you get this? And, you know, how do you know how to do this? So, you know, I did that for years. And after applying this book of business to multiple businesses, I realized that, you know, I'm on to to something here. Mm-hmm. And I realized that um, it gave me a huge, huge satisfaction reward to help these businesses. And I figured out that I can help more than just one business at a time. I can help out an entire industry as a consultant rather than one business as an employee. Mm-hmm. And it gets you out of the heat. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's and uh, it it was a perfect timing because you know with a uh, we were starting a family and to have more time with them and because the the green industry is it's long hours, especially during peak season. So now I have time to spend my family and as well as getting the satisfaction of helping businesses and associations. Yeah. So tell me about like what sort of businesses that you work with and why do they come to you? Is it like, do you have a specific niche or is it just nursery businesses in general? Yeah. So I would say the majority of the business I work with and have the most experience with developing are production nurseries. Uh, right. That could be containerized, that could be B&B tree farms, uh, someone that is at the ground level of producing the plant from the from the dirt up. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, be wholesale nurseries, retail, and then landscapers as well. And then a, right. a new uh, venture that we're going into is uh, bringing products to the market. So like soil additives and uh, different retail items and bringing that into the horticulture market Uh, because a lot of people don't speak horticulture quote unquote Mm -hmm. Uh, so they're looking they have this product and they want to bring it to nurserymen but uh it's it's all over you know i've worked with some businesses that have are just starting out Uh, one of them hasn't even opened their doors yet and then some of them are five to ten years and then the oldest one I worked with, they started in like the 1920s. Um, so they've been around for a long time. And, you know, working with them is a way different complex than working out with someone that's just starting. So it's it's all type of businesses. 
in all different shapes and forms. So it's um, it's not necessarily one thing because what I help businesses with is a lot more broad than one specific skill. That makes sense. So like, let's take the, the oldest nursery, for example. When we're talking about a, uh, a nursery that has been around since the 1920s, that business is a lot different than the one that started out. So an older business, what you have to do is you have to make little tweaks where on the ones that are just starting out, the ones that are what I call hungry to do better and they're really aggressive, you know, those businesses, you have, you can have the, the chance to make big swings and really infuse culture and technical skills at the same time. So they're treated way differently. And then that leads you into what type of businesses and why do they come? Why do they f- come to me to figure this out? Um, it's been something that has developed over time. But what I figured out was that there is a, what I call walls or plateaus that every one of these businesses seems to hit. And in the U.S., a lot of production nurseries and wholesale nurseries, they they end up hitting these walls at about, and then 10 and 20. It's always compounding double like that. So what I help them is figuring out where these walls are and what those walls look like, and then develop them to figure out how to get past these walls. And using the past experience with other employers and and looking at different uh, different businesses on how they can overcome these. Yeah, no doubt. Look, you talked about business development. I think we should get a little bit deeper into it, but let's start with maybe someone who's not like a business that doesn't have that C-suite of executives. Can you tell us about easy entry thresholds and limitations? Yeah. So the nursery business doesn't take a whole lot to be successful. It doesn't take a a top-of-the-line facility. You don't have to have the top-of-the-line greenhouses. It's a pretty easy entry threshold. Mm. So the the issues are that a lot of businesses, especially nurseries, they get caught up in the working in the business and not Mm. working on the business. So they get kind of stagnant. And this business, especially in the because the green industry is fueled with passion and passionate people, that passion usually ends up being lost along the way. Yeah. So you start out with a nursery that is fueled by this, the founder that has this great vision and has the technical knowledge and, and wants to make a difference. And then five, 10 years later, they have tried to figure all these things out by trial and error. And worse than that, some of these businesses spend 20, 30 years figuring it out if they even get to figure it, if they don't fold in the meantime. So what I work on is the encompassing idea that there are many avenues that a business can grow. And each business has to figure these these kind of basic, but staple needs to overcome. So it's it's a big, big topic when you say business development, because it's a huge idea that you're going to develop a business. 
but where they develop is the hard hard part. And a lot of businesses don't look introspectively to figure out where they can improve. And the another issue is that you know outside of the technical stuff like soil complexes and and rooting hormones, there's very little resources that bring a good business sense into the industry of how to market and how to advertise. It's getting better. It really is. But when I started, there wasn't really a whole lot out there. I see. So what does it take then? Like if you could just describe it for us briefly, I know that we're not going to get to consult with you today properly on a specific business, but let's just say that owner operator who has lost their passion, their staff don't share that passion that they had when they started and they're just sort of plodding along now. The business is good. It's fine. It pays everyone's wages. It puts food on the table Mm -hmm. and it pays for the rent, pays for the lights to stay on. But what does it take for a business like that to become truly great? Yes. So that is where they hit these plateaus, right? There is, there are these walls that I call them that a business hits and they can go so far on their own. And then they have to make a, a big change to figure out how to get past these walls and a good company will survive, but a great company will thrive Mm -hmm. no matter what environment you put in it. And the reason that they're able to, to thrive is that there's there's four big topics that I work on. And they're the major issues that, I mean, there hasn't been a business that I've worked with so far that I haven't worked on a little bit on each one of these to some degree. It's communication, leadership, marketing, and then just sometimes it's just the technical stuff little tips and tricks on how to grow a better plant or how to have better customer service. So within those four things, I mean, that is what makes a good company become a great company when they take those four ideas and understand how to improve them and how to apply them. I see. And I suppose trial and error isn't the way. Yes and no. So <laughs> trial and error is a good catalyst to to get there, but it's not effective. You know, it's kind of like trying to fill up a swimming pool with a garden hose. Mm-hmm. It'll do it, but it'd be a lot easier if you had a little bit more volume, a little bit of pressure. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's it's just you got to really focus in on it and push it, and rather than getting on the defensive and constantly just waiting for problems to occur and, and working through them, we're getting ahead of these issues and getting ahead of what challenges lie. That way, when they do come up, it is automatically, hey, look, this is how we can overcome this, right? We had a uh, recession. Okay, here's what we're going to do instead of trying mm-hmm. to figure it out and then being on the backside of it. You know, I, I talk to businesses like changing a tire. You know, you have them, um, uh, a knowledge you have someone that knows how to change a tire really well and so no one else bothers to learn how to change a tire mm. but then whenever that person leaves for whatever reason you're thrown right back into the learning curve and now you have to teach uh-huh. someone else how to change a tire and if they have no idea what they're doing it's going to take a long time and that's where you know we we work on these businesses on how to 
overcome and how to look at these ahead of time and really plan for it and plan to overcome them. Mm-hmm. I'm guilty of this. I think like, oh, I, I have these tasks to do. I have this funding that I can spend on things. But then at the end of the day, if you're not actually getting help from somebody who's walked this path before and they don't always want to do it for free. Sometimes they will do it for free for you, but sometimes you actually do have to pay for a consultant to come in and say, hey, dude, get the garden hose out. You need to spend 500 bucks on getting the um, the water truck out to fill up the pool. And then we can all move on with our lives and start making more money. It's, it's just right. You've got to get, you've got to ask the right people, the right questions to get the right answers. And you have to, to be able to trust someone else's experience and knowledge on how to apply it and how to apply it to your situation. So it's, it's a, it is fun to, to talk to people because for me, it is, I talk with a lot of agricultural entrepreneurs and often they are the salt of the earth kind of people. And they have started these businesses from the bootstraps and it's their baby. And they always wonder, well, why should I hire a consultant? And all it takes is typically one conversation to see the value in it because you get to see something from a completely different vantage point and you get to see a whole different aspect that you, you didn't think of before. And, uh, and that's why for me, I, I offer a hundred percent guarantee just because of that if you can't see the value, then, then it's free. And I've yet to take a, have a client to actually take me up on that. Um, uh, but you're exactly right. It's, uh, sometimes you gotta figure out who to ask and you gotta ask the right people, the right questions to get the right answers. It's fun to talk with the ones I have a, a term that I use the businesses that I really like working with is, is the ones that I call hungry. Mm-hmm. They're businesses that that see the need and they they want to devour the market and they want to go out there and they're aggressive, but they also see the value in other people and talking with other people and getting their opinions and learning. Those are the people that I really connect with. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that are they want to do better and they want to be better. And they know that that there are people that can help them with that. You know, it's, it's like Tiger Woods, you know, he was the best golfer in the world for years, decades. Even he had a swing coach that he worked with every day. Was that person better than Tiger Woods? No, but he understood that he needed help with his game. It's it's the same thing for me. It's a good analogy. So you mentioned that there were four key cornerstones here to the business consulting that you sort of do and and areas that you like to focus on. I'd like to start with communication. Are we just talking about what is said or is it how it's said or is it even deeper than that? Yes. So communication is the largest topic and it's that way for a reason because your business is made up of nothing but communication and information. Mm. And if it can't communicate properly within itself and also inside and out of the business from your employees to your customers and within each department, then that is the, the biggest hindrance of a company growing. There's top down communication and then there's inner outer company communication. 
Yeah. So branding and marketing. Exactly. That's uh, branding and marketing is all key, all tied together. And all four of these things, it's, I say that I haven't worked with a single business that I haven't touched a little bit on all four of those topics is because they all bleed into each other. Mm. And it's hard to have someone come in and say, I only want you to work on my communication. I can do that, but we really need to talk about leadership when we talk about communication. Mm-hmm. Because like you said, it's also, it's not just what's being said, it's how it's being said. Mm. And like, so I have a, a, a young man that I'm, I'm mentoring uh, leadership coaching and, and we're talking about, he has the technical knowledge, but we're working on is how to present the knowledge and how to start the conversation, how to ask the right questions and how to improve that communication again, both within his own company, talking with his employees and talking with the founder of the company and also with how to talk to customers, mm-hmm. you know, how to, how to speak fluent in sales. And that is the biggest topic by far that, that, um, like I said, every, every business I've worked with, I've, that is the largest topic that I've, I've worked on. And it even goes back to that point you were making about the father hoping to pass the business on to his son. Well, I'm guessing he probably didn't explain every little thing in his head. It's easy. Oh, you just, you just do it. And then it's like you mm-hmm. hand it over to someone and then he w- he'll want to step in and be like, actually, that's wrong. Actually, you need to do it like this. Actually, 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 actually. Yep. Whereas if you had been mentoring his son throughout the period of a few years, that's the only way you can really get it is by that slow training, isn't it? Yeah. And that's, there's a, a saying that the first generation builds it. Second generation builds it further than that and expands it. Third generation kills it. <laughs> and, and that's exactly why, because the first generation was a mentor to the second generation. They were mm-hmm. there. They, they saw, got to see it build and they got to that second generation got to see the passion and they got to see how a good business is run. And the third business was kind of just, it was just always a part of their life. So mm. they come in with that, without that mentor, without that guidance, and they come in with guns blazing without the history, without mm. the, the experience, and it backfires. I can see that. So I think a lot of businesses... I mean, I've been lucky to work in some pretty good ones, but I've seen some bad ones out there too, and I've worked in some not-so-great ones before. How do you change the culture when it's so ingrained? Because, you know, there, there's such a thing as a as a company culture, and it does get ingrained. How do you change it once it's already started in a particular direction? Yes. So culture is it's definitely one of those buzz topics, right? I mean, everyone is talking about culture, and Luckily, it has taken the forefront of a lot of business development. So when you have a company that is stuck in a certain culture, there's a few different ways to do it. And I've seen it through gradual changes. And then I've also seen it, you know, tear down the studs and rebuild it. Mm-hmm. And I've been a part of both. And the tear down the studs, it was a lot of... Uh, very frank conversations with the entire crew. Um, I'm very much one to promote having a, a group conversation rather than individual conversations within each department or each person. Um, 
it was a lot of deep conversations like, Hey, look, look guys. Um, the first thing you have to do is you have to start with the vision, right? And you have to put into the relevance of past, present and future. And my, my clients that I work with, they know that there's, this is something I talk about quite often past, present and future, because you have to understand where you've been mm. and including your culture, you know, where has your culture been and you have to acknowledge it and you have to learn from it and you have to tell them where you are now. Hey, I know we were here. I recognize that is not right. And we were going to improve on this. Here's where we're at now. This is a, this is what I'm doing right now. This is what I'm trying to achieve. I need your help doing this because, and then we shift to the future. I want to be here. This is where we want to go. I want to do this, not just for me. I want to do this for us. And that's, that's how to move that culture and to shift it. You have to acknowledge the past, present the present and show the vision, show the future. I see. Because if, if you don't tell them where they're going, it, it doesn't make any sense why they're doing what they should be doing or why they're doing, you know, what, what you're asking of them. You got to tell them the why every great business has a why. It's very Simon Sinek. It, uh, it can <laughs> be, you know, and it's, um, I, I listened to a lot of audiobooks, and there was a quote <laughs> in one of the books and they were saying that, um, and I'm, it's you know, not verbatim, but it was a, uh, a man that doesn't know where he's going. Any road will take him there. And that's exactly <laughs> right. You know, if, if he just wanders, he'll, he'll go exactly where he was planning on going the whole time. It may be in a ditch, you know, yeah. it may be off a cliff, but he'll get there, you know, but if you give him a map and you show him where to go, yeah. you know, you don't have to tell him where every single step is. But if you tell him the right direction, he'll get there. <laughs> it's like a that. it's the same thing with culture. Yeah. But what about like I imagine like okay, so you make all these big commitments, you get up there in front of the company culture and everything's great for four weeks, and then Rain Gibson leaves and then you come back six months <laughs> later and, and it's all back to like do you have any success stories about when this has actually worked? Because I think you can really burn the trust if you get up there and make these promises and then break them. Yes. Yep, exactly. So, and that's when I tell you that all these topics bleed into each other because, you know, it starts with the communication of the culture and the vision, right? But then where it, the brass tacks come to, to play is the leadership mm. because that's where it all starts to, to see the vision. And then quite often that's also where it dies because that's exactly what happens. You know, it gets forgotten about and we get wrapped up in, in the putting out fires and we just forget about doing this. But mm. You know, every business, again, started out of passion and out of emotion. So we have to to train leadership to recognize that and to embrace that and to use it and make sure that it doesn't get forgotten. Mm -hmm. Because when it gets forgotten, that's when the business gets forgotten. That's mm -hmm. when the customers forget about the business mm -hmm. because there's nothing there that invokes that emotional trigger. Um, to put it very bluntly, I try to teach companies that there has to be a why. Mm. And at the end of the day, it is why should your employees show up and why should your customers choose you? Mm -hmm. 
you have to give them a why. And if there's no leadership to to tell them why, then they end up, like I said, in a ditch or off a cliff. Yeah. They kind of mold themselves. You try to work with these companies that have, you know, 40, 50 years of experience in uh, business and, and they're pretty established. And then when you start talking about them and they uh, they have their their routine of how they go about their communication. And oftentimes when you start talking to the, the, uh, the lower level employees, you know, the entry level, the intermediate, the assistant managers, they really uh, don't, don't have a grasp on, on why they are there in the first place other than to pick up a check. And that's when you see a lot of companies kind of falter because they have no purpose. I want to talk about leadership soon and I sort of think of it like every part of the body has a different role. So it's like, you know, mm-hmm. everything under the tummy is trying to digest the food. It's trying to um, make sure that it goes to the right places and distribute that food. But the head is the one who decides to go on a diet. Like the head is the one that decides whether we're going to exactly. eat fried chicken today or whether we're going to eat that, yep. you know, the the vegetables and, and the and the healthy food. Man, that is awesome because I call that the circulatory system, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's your blood. It's your blood. It's your information that's going past it. Your brain tells your fingers to move, but you know, at, at all of it, it's your blood. And, and even your blood gets filtered out. It mm. gets cleansed. It gets <laughs> cleaned. It, it, if it doesn't, then that's when you have a, a major breakdown. Yeah. It's so awesome. That you said that, cause I call that the circular circulatory system within yeah. a business. Yeah. But we're not done with communication yet. I think there's a lot more uh, meat to unpack here to to digest. Oh, yeah. So, so what does a changing culture transfer look like in practice? Yes. So there is different ways to do it, and we talked about how there's you know tearing it down the studs, and then there's subtle changes. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're talking about changing a culture, it's typically the downfall is a death by a thousand cuts. <laughs> and it's something that typically they don't notice it at first and then it just slowly builds. Yeah. But whenever you're, you're doing this, what does it look like in person? Uh, in practice, it looks like engagement. It looks like mm. the, the leadership is present. A lot of times I see businesses and, and they, I, I work on a, a 60, 40 concept, 60% developmental, 40% technical. And mm. when I talked about, their communication and their culture within that I start at the ground level. I don't talk to necessarily the managers first. I like to get in with the crew and ask them questions. Mm-hmm. And often they, they don't really see, they don't see the owners. They don't see the managers. They kind of get a little input here and there. But when you see culture start to change, you see that that manager is more inviting you see that that manager start to have real conversations and understand more than what is being asked of them, but they're able to transfer that importance and that role up and down, up uh, all the way from the top of the company down. So it is no longer, hey, you do this. It is, hey, let's work together and figure out the best way that we can do this. Okay, well then, well in the past we did it this way and it didn't work. How can we make it better? Mm-hmm. And honestly, 
it is so simple. And I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you my my secret. The number one way to change culture is to ask questions. That is that is it. It is so simple. And when I thought about it and when I first kind of learned this technique, it was so eye-opening. Because when someone starts asking questions, it becomes a a team rather than just individuals fitting in their own box, stacking on top of each other. It is a, a, a uniformity. And what the questions look like, it is, hey, how can I support you? How can I help you? What can we do to make this better? Where are we on this project? It's questions. Rather than being point to point of demanding, it is simple. It is asking questions and the depth of those questions and actually listening to those questions, listening to the answers. That is the number one thing that helps culture is just simply asking questions. Wow. And then the following through was pretty important too, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, you have to do something with information. You can't just ask the question and and leave it on the table. Yeah. But uh, even then, let's say it's on the other end too, right? It's not just leadership asking questions down. It is Mm. the employees asking questions up. Hey, you know, last week we had talked about uh, improving our uh, vacation policy or our uniform policy, whatever it is. Um, Did you talk to the founder about that? You know, what did he say? You know, it is, it's asking questions all the way up and down, inside and out. Yeah, I was about to say inside and out because we're talking about in and out at the moment. I guess we'll be talking about marketing in just a moment. So I suppose we can leave some of the marketing questions for then. What do you reckon? Oh, yeah, man. Again, it's it all bleeds in together. Yeah. So, I mean, don't feel bad if they if we kind of weave in and out of them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So can you give us an example of like, what are some of the, like, I, I know, I don't want to keep beating this drum, but can you give me an example of a company that you've helped and what did it look like at the end when they got their communication right internally? Yeah. Okay. So a good example that I use often is with production planning. Um, within production planning, there's typically two departments. Now, sometimes it's the owner that is doing everything, but even then, within his own head, he still is having the same uh, communication issues. And it's between sales and production. And it's always a, a cart and horse scenario, which comes first. Do you focus on production to get sales or do you focus on sales to make your production? And often, they these two departments butt heads and they don't talk to each other well because they all, they each feel like they're they're getting pressure to meet their their quotas and to meet their numbers and they're each judged on different uh different terms on their effectiveness and their value but often they don't talk together so like with the nursery that i'm working with currently we're working on trying to to blend them together and to have the conversations together so what we did was we started a uh, what I call stand-up meetings, and it is 30 minutes standing up, and we talk about the past, present, the future, and it's really important for me to see the conversation between the sales team and the production team, and the way it was 
before is that production didn't want to listen to sales because sales was always pushing them on telling them what to do and and how many they need to produce and, and it's not big enough or it's not pretty enough or you didn't plan enough or you plan them at the wrong time. It was always, you know, them barking at each other. Then the production says, well, I produced what you wanted me to last year and you didn't sell it. And it was ready a month ago and um, you didn't get your trucks in and it's they're always barking at each other. So what we did was we started these stand up meetings where they have to hold each other accountable but in a way that is copacetic. So with the sales manager, we'll talk about, okay, um, in the past, how many trucks got loaded? Whether there are any issues with the truck? Was there any, let's say there's a quality issue. Okay, well, was it something where the customer didn't have the right expectations for what the plant was? Or were our quality standards actually not good enough? You know, mm. so then the the production manager doesn't get barked at saying, Hey, I need you to, to grow these trees a foot taller. It turns into a, an understanding from the other person's viewpoint. And then they talk about the present. So the um, production manager will say, okay, I'm currently working on trimming back all of the three gallon hollies. So wait, and then, the sales manager says, oh, wait, 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 hold on. I need to, I have, I'm, I have a customer that we're working on selling half of that crop. Don't, don't trim them yet. Where before it was, you know, why did you trim all these? Oh, I had to sell for these. Well, you know, you shouldn't have trimmed all the, why couldn't you just, you know, mm-hmm. now they're, they're talking together. So each manager has their time to, that's uninterrupted for them to go through their past, present and future. And at the end, that's where I see the biggest difference now, because at the end of the meeting, they have the chance of of talking interdepartmental. So if production manager said something that piqued the interest of sales after the meeting, they can talk one on one and go through those those topics of, hey, you said that you're going to trim those hollies. Can you wait till uh, later this afternoon because I have a sale? Uh, I want to see if those go through or. You know, last time you cut them down really hard and our, our customers didn't like that. Can we try and do this a little bit different? So it's more of a conversation. And for me, I like when I moderate the meetings, I'll end it and then I'll I'll leave because I don't want to hinder their communication. I want to for them to do it themselves. And then afterwards, I'll ask them about how it went. And it's. I've done this for three or four companies now, and it is it is so relieving whenever they come to me and say that you know they have been able to increase their numbers on both you know sales and production in that company's case, you know by 10, 20 percent just because they're talking to each other and they're 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 not having these hour-long sit-down board meetings where nothing is really getting said. You know, they're kind of grazing over because this is just what you do on Thursdays at at 3 p.m. is you go sit in the boardroom and and have donuts. You know, now it is 30 minutes. You got you got to get in and you have to go and you have to if the important information not important, then you're going to be held accountable for it. Mm -hmm. Because if that sales manager doesn't bring up that he has half of those Holly sold and you trim them because you didn't know, well, then he's held accountable. Mm. so you have to it's a little bit of pulling teeth 
to start with. But once they start seeing that relationship develop and seeing how that communication can work for them, it is absolutely amazing. And it turns into actual dollars. Mm. And that's why we get into business in the first place. Exactly. I mean, if, and then, I mean, if you're not having fun at work and you can't communicate well, and yeah. that's, that's when people tend to, tend to not stay where they're at. Yeah. We get the churn. Yeah. It's, it's culture and it's communication. Mm-hmm. That is, you know, the number one killer of, of, uh, of, was it slow quitting, uh, quiet quitting? Yeah. Yeah. Is, uh, yeah, culture and communication. Yeah. So, look, before we get on to leadership, I just have one more question with regards to communication, and that's passive information. Can you tell me what it is and why it's important? Yeah. So there's two modes of communication or or modes of thought with communication. There's active information and then there's passive information. So active information is the actual message that you're pushing out into the world, like your phone calls, emails, uh, trade shows. Uh, things that are actually being said, you know, these are text. This is you talking. This is Facebook ads um, where passive is uh, a lot of people call it the brand, right? It mm. is what your company is telling the world without actually saying a word. So like I said, in the last decade, the the big buzzwords called branding, but it is, it's so important because the way I look at it, and is that imagine your your biggest next customer, your next biggest customer. You don't know who he is. You don't know he's going to be your biggest customer. Imagine he's sitting next to you, and one of your current clients walks in, walks in, and starts a conversation with that guy. What is he going to say about your business? Because mm. that's the very first impression they're going to get. You know, a nursery. Uh, if he says that, yeah, man, the, the plants are great, but man, they're always full of weeds. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, oh man, they, they're, they're really great about, um, their quality, but their, but their customer service is lacking. Right. So all in all, that becomes the passive information that your company is telling the world that becomes the, the number one killer of, of conversion of actual dollars is, is not seeing that passive information and acting on it. Is it also like the clutter that's in the corner and the weeds themselves? Like you, you don't, that's not part of the text that you've written, but when someone comes in, they can see the weeds and they can just see the clutter. Oh yeah, man. It is, it is all, all related. So like for me, I do a lot of nursery tours and like I said, it doesn't take a, a great nursery to grow a great plant. But whenever you're driving through a nursery, I, f- I focused on two things. I want to clean roads and I want to know weeds. Because if I'm giving a tour to a nursery, uh, a new client, someone that's never been in my nursery before, and I'm driving them through the nursery, if I'm having to dodge potholes and having to constantly duck around equipment and, and uh, th- they're not looking at the plants, the reason that they're there and what I'm my business is for is to sell this plant. They're not looking at those plants. They're looking at the road in front of them trying to prepare yeah. for that next pothole. Yeah. You know, if, if they look out there and they see a bunch of weeds, they don't see the pretty plant underneath it. They're what they're seeing is 
if I get, if I oil this plant right now, they're going to rip those weeds out. And then those weeds are my problem because they're going to come back in, in a week, mm-hmm. if not a couple of days. So it is whenever you're putting an availability out there, you know, people like to send a picture of, of a specimen plant, but then they don't look at the background. You know, if I, there's a, a nursery right. that, that I get their, their availability emails once a month and they had a picture of a gorgeous uh, four inch Schumard Oak. And I mean, it was beautiful, but then when you start looking behind them, all the other ones are crooked and they've got <laughs> scarring in there. They've got holes in them. And I'm thinking like, that's not the one I'm going to get. Point. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> why'd you show me this one great one? If you've got a crop full of duds, Yeah. you know, so it's, it's the passive information. It's just, it's what's being said when nothing is being said, you know, it is the, the cust- the appearance of, of your company and the appearance of your product. Uh, it speaks way more than, than just the quality and just the service. It's all the in-between stuff. It's a bit like body language and your words. Like I can say, oh, you can trust me, but if I have contempt all written all over my face, your bullshit alarm's going to go off. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's a, you're exactly right. It, it is just as much the presentation that is, as it is the actual content. Mm. You're exactly right. So I'd like to move on to leadership now. When we were talking about this, you said that leadership can be debilitating. And I've been a leader myself, and there's an element of truth to that. Can you tell me why that is? Yeah, so there's, there's often a, a big breakdown. You know, they've worked consistently. And they've worked with purpose. And again, it starts with these owners having an agricultural background. They're the, they, they are rooted in hard work. Um, you know, and they always say, you know, back in my day, we had to work hard. And, and what that does is it creates an environment of expecting the next person to do the exact same, mm, which isn't a right. bad, bad assumption. But what happens is that it doesn't, it doesn't get transferred again, why they should be doing it. And they don't see the vision of why you felt that you had to break your back and, and why I should do the same. And often when the leadership doesn't understand how to communicate, it looks like they should be breaking their back without question, you know, just be quiet, do your work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that doesn't really, that doesn't work nowadays. Mm -hmm. Right. Again, that's kind of that, that culture buzzword having to to be put more in the forethought of of the leadership role and and uh, really taking a forefront on that aspect. When you're talking about leadership, you know it's it's flies and and honey, not vinegar. Yeah, exactly. It makes a difference on trying to get the next generation in. And make them under, feel important and make sure that they understand their value and make sure that you understand their value. It's It can be debilitating when a, a leadership kind of breaks down and, and doesn't doesn't pass along that, that vision. Mm-hmm. I just want to pass on a little bit of just from my own experience too. As a leader, sometimes it's, it is frustrating and that's just your job. Um, you know, you, you might have someone like from my experience, I had someone who would rake up a pile of leaves, then walk five meters to put it in the bin and then walk back and then 
break up the pile of leaves again and then walk back and forth. And and it, and it can be frustrating, but that's actually part of your job is to be able to deal with those situations. And I, I'm, I don't know. I think sometimes there is a little bit of a kick up the bum involved in leadership, but it can't be your only method, can it? No. And that's, that's exactly it. And I'm, I'm not going to say that I'm, I'm perfect by any means. I have had to, to mold my leadership style and at least every person has their own individual style of how they go about it, but I'm no different. I mean, I was, when I came in, I was young and hungry and I thought I, I thought I was it. I thought I was, you know, top <laughs> dog. And I started trying to bark orders because I had the the knowledge, I had the experience, um, and I knew what, what we needed to do. And it was not received well at all. Mm. And it took me a long time to to figure that out. And I I have continuously improved it. And I have to catch myself because again, when you're talking about that that passion for for wanting to do better, it is really hard for for leadership to take a back seat on areas that can be improved mm. and people that can be improved. So they want to they want to see you do better. And the hard part is relating what you want to get done and why they should get it done. That's the hardest thing is for a leader to, to convey that and to not use means of, like I said, kick up the bum to, to get it done. Yeah. So what we all want to do, just, just do the work, man. Just do the work, Mm. you know, do it this way. Just please do this way. (laughs) But it, it often falls short. So how would you tell someone who's raking up a pile of leaves five meters away from the bin and walking back and forth? And you've already told them, like, I don't mean to sound like a grumpy old man, but I've told you nicely yeah. over the last couple yeah. of weeks. And now you've been here at this job for six weeks now and, you know, your training period's over. How do you how do you say that nicely to the person so that they don't get offside with you? Yep. So it is a, a different conversation depending on, on where you are, right? So if you're obviously like, you know, the new guy, you know, that's a way different conversation than if you're working side by side with a person. Mm. That conversation is way different if you have aspirations of moving to management. That's a way different conversation if you already are the leader right. of that person. You know, if you if you're driving up to a job site to do a, you know, an inspection or a you know just a, a routine checkup and you see that, it's a way different conversation. So, from the the viewpoint of uh, someone that is working next to him, right? Equals in the, in the job. And that person has taken 12 forevers to, to get this job done. Definitely do it the right way. You know, don't hold anyone else's work against yours because nothing is going to be a reflection of your own work, but your own work. You know, it's, it's really important not to try and there, there are people that just can't be motivated. You know, and there's definitely a place for those people, but you have to relate it to what your aspirations are. Now, from a leadership example, you know, you take this into account and you try to level with them. You know, I've I've been in a position where I had someone um, that was kind of just getting by, doing the minimum and 
they didn't show any desire to do better or to be better and do things differently. You know, they were just there to just show up and do work. And that's perfectly fine. There's always room for those people. But the conversation was we did quarterly reviews. I said, okay, now I've watched you and you've done a good job. You've shown up, you do what's asked of you. And whenever it comes to your advancement, you know, I want to ask you, you know, where do you want to be? You know, because I'm willing to invest in you as much as you want. If you want to to be a order puller or, you know, if you want to be an assistant manager, um, it's going to take more. So if is that somewhere that you want to be? Mm. Because I can't make someone be motivated, but I can help someone understand that if they don't get motivated, then they're going to be stuck. Mm. So it's, it's a different conversation depending on where you're at and what the accomplishment is supposed to be. You know, someone that is always five minutes late, you know, ducks off the clock right when the bell rings and, you know, they're doing the bare minimum. Whenever that person asks for a raise, then there's not much of a leg to stand for. Them. No. But it's not even about, in this case like about their career it's also about from that passive communication standpoint because the clients or customers are walking through your nursery looking at this person doing it like that and then they're saying oh so that's what gets like they allow that to fly here and also from another perspective as well the team leader who's just that maybe they're only in charge of a couple of people between middle management and that staff member that reflects on them as well. And when you've told them, let's say you've told them three times over the last six weeks, their training period's up now. You're you're one of us now. Like, how do you bring it up kindly? Or is it just at this point, you're not going to make it, kid? As uh, the team leader? Yeah. So if I was the team leader and someone new came in and they, you know, they were, again, doing the bare minimum, they weren't really doing much. Um, again, there's always there's always a place for that person. Sure. But they're making your business look bad. It is. It does. And it depends on how forward facing that person is. You know, if it is to a point where the job quality is, is going down and the effectiveness of that crew is being, is being brought down, then yes, that is a time to step in and make sure that either one employee goes no further or they they really understand like this is this is your, this is the last shot this is what it takes mm-hmm. but honestly it should have never gotten to that point that person should have known what their expectations were from the beginning mm-hmm. you know, they should have known that hey uh this is how we rake leaves yeah we don't take 15 trips back and forth that way <laughs> they can't say later on whenever you're mad at them for going back and forth 15 times you know they they can't say well, I didn't know. Mm-hmm. No, it should there should it shouldn't have gotten to that point. If that if you explain this person, this is how we rake leaves, and they continue to do it a different way. Well, then yeah, that that person doesn't really have a a, a place within that team. So you set the expectation, you gain their agreement. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It became an agreement of this is what we do, this is how we do it. I see. It's also, I mean, it's a constant flow because I've had uh, team members that were great forward facing to, to me and to the, 
the clients and the people that are walking around the nursery. But then behind the scenes, they were very aggressive in how they demanded things get done. Right. So it's, it's kind of, it's not one size fits all when it comes to leadership. It is almost a case by case. Now there is standards, of course, you know, and you have to give every employee at every level the chance to, to bring their peers up on review and feel like they can bring forward those because I want, it was months before someone told me that they didn't like their, their crew leader because of the way they were yelling at them, mm-hmm. you know, I like the crew leader. He was a nice guy, but yeah. whenever he was on the job, he was, you know, not nice mm-hmm. <laughs> to put in, in polite words. And I can see how you get that way too, honestly, like, part of the job is to it's not to be nice but it's to be a good communicator and sometimes i I don't think being nice is the right way i think being an effective communicator is because you have to get rid of a wise man once told me get rid of the emotion and deal with the facts and i've carried that with me throughout my entire career and that has helped me so much yep so for me it's uh I, i say that it's uh walk quietly and carry a big stick (laughs) <laughs> you know it's you have to have the information you know mm. what i it's and that's what it boils down to is that if you if you have a leg to stand on then you have you know the power mm. if you you know you have to know how to present it and you know how to manage it but at the end of the day if you don't have the information then you don't have the power to mm. to make a change mm-hmm. i see so, like, tell me about the role of passion. Like, how how does how does that passion play into leadership? Like, is it important for a leader to have passion, or is passion something that you know drops out of the heaven into your lap, or is it something that you have to cultivate? What's the role of passion in leadership? Yep. So there's there's passion from a standpoint that you just have it, right? Mm. You just you're just in it and you love it, and this is really what you want to do. And that's just organic passion and it's great, but it's often rare. (laughs) And so for someone that is, you know, like a a guy that I'm talking to, he's entering into the horticulture industry and, and uh, he has, he has passion in a sense that he knows how to, or where he wants to be and how he wants to make a difference. And he wants to apply that to the horticulture industry. Mm-hmm. So now he has to get an understanding of the industry and how to apply that passion. So at the core of this is the connection and the separation of emotions and expertise. Because you have to understand that there's a time to apply and a time to separate each of those. It's when you apply too much of one on the far end of the spectrum is when it is not copacetic to the overall goal. And think of it like a drill instructor, right? Mm. Uh, in the, like he is just yelling at you and it is mm. emotionally just draining for him to be yelling at you constantly and degrading you. And that emotion, he has the emotion and he has expertise, but he's on the far end of the spectrum on both of those. 
Mm. So it, you have to be able to connect <laughs> and disconnect the emotion with the expertise. You know, yeah. so it works great for the army, but it doesn't work for <laughs> retail garden center. Even though I think I might want to see that one day. I think I want to see a drill instructor <laughs> run a garden center. It'd be fun. But there's also like, you don't even have to yell for your anger to show through. It's it's in your micro movements. It's in your body language. People can sniff when you, when you're, when you're cranky and when you're angry, you don't even have to yell for people to be upset with you about that. No. And that's, Again, the the connection separation. If you can separate, and that's, again, early in my career, it was so hard to do because I knew what needed to be done and I was so passionate about it, but it didn't get communicated well. Mm. So what I had to do was learn to, to stop, to breathe, to think of it from their perspective and realize that if they did something wrong, it's because I didn't teach them properly. Mm. If they didn't go down the right path, it's because I didn't lay out the path properly. Hmm. Right? So I had to stop and think and to disconnect my emotion and lean heavier on the expertise part of it, on the the knowledge. And some people can respond to that yelling too. Like I've had bosses that yelled at me and I never sort of, I just thought that that was just part of the job. Like I got ADHD and I left um, a hedger on a property once. Yeah, I got yelled at and that was just the way it was when I was coming up. And I think I'm the sort of person where I just took it on and I said, oh, that's my fault. I need to do this better. But as I've gotten older, I've realized there's two sides to it. Yes, it's true. I should never have left the hedger on the property. But at the same time, there are ways to communicate things effectively. And it's a never-ending journey for a team leader. It's not anyone listening to this who wants to be a team leader because I think it's a glamorous job or because it's easier than being on the tools. It's really not. It's actually a very difficult and emotionally taxing job. Oh, it is. It really is because you're not having to deal with just your emotions. You're having to deal with everyone's emotions. Yeah. And it's, it's a very mentally draining task. And again, I'm not, not to say that I'm, I've been perfect. I have yelled at crew members, mm-hmm. but in my, my more recent career, what I was able to do again is was disconnect that and, and, and acknowledge that, yes, I did lose my temper, mm. but here's why, mm. right? I apologize that I did it. I should have done it. I should have done this instead, but let mm. me explain to you why I'm so passionate about this. Yeah. And then you're not completely in the wrong. You're not saying, oh, what I said doesn't matter. You can just forget everything I said just because I was angry. Exactly. You know, it's not, uh, you know, just tucking tail between your legs. It is trying to relate and and connect back that expertise with mm. the emotion. And bridge that gap again because you built a gap. Yeah, exactly. And it's always awkward when you get yelled at, you know, and, and they don't <laughs> go to, through with explaining why they yelled at you, why it's so important, because then it's awkward, right? You, you know, that person mm. just yelled at you, you know, it takes a couple of days where you don't want to look them in the eyes and, and that is days lost of of communication and connection mm-hmm. you know just because of of pride so okay let's say we're in a position now we've we've done that we've we've been angry and now mm-hmm. we've gone away and we've realized okay we need to change this this organization needs to change because you can't just change it after one time you have to actually make massive change because these are ingrained habits nothing ever happens once have you ever seen a company come back from a culture of, you know, yelling and screaming or other kinds of toxic leadership 
have you ever seen them come back from that into a more positive mode and then actually sustain that? Yes, I have. And that where that's where it takes more of a tearing it down and building back up. Right. Maybe not fully, but on at least how that person, that toxic person was received throughout the company. Mm. All those connections have to be rebuilt. Right. So whatever, let's say it was a, uh, a team leader that had that talked to sales and talked production and he, and he had all these different aspects where his information was being received and it was not, not good. <laughs> all those connections have to be broke down and rebuilt back up in the correct manner. So whenever you bring the new person on, you have to explain them again, past, present, future. This is how it was done. This is what we're doing right now. And this is how I want it to be. Mm. How are we going to do this together? You know, so at the before, whenever the crew would um, put gas in the diesel machine, you know, they would get yelled at. Okay. <laughs> but instead, you know, I understand that that's, that's what happened. And that's how he yelled at them. But <laughs> instead, let's think of, okay, well, how can we prevent this? As if they didn't feel bad enough about it already, you know? Exactly. I mean, they already feel bad that they ruined a machine. No. <laughs> and what's worse was they tried to to fix it and they tried to drain it, but they ended up just ruining it even further because they were so embarrassed yeah. and they didn't want to get yelled at that it went two days. And finally, the manager was like, hey, why aren't y'all using the machine? And they had to come forward with it. And it it was just this repeating of trying to you know, cover the mistakes because they didn't want to get yelled at. Yeah. So it's, you know, when you try and tear that down and let's say you replace that person, every one of those connections with within people has to be reestablished. Mm-hmm. And has to be reestablished with what, how you want it to be, how you want it to be done. And you, it's also about being tactical too. Again, that that um, phrase of deal with the facts, remove the emotion kind of comes up for me because it's like, yeah, that can be frustrating as a team leader when someone makes a, a goofy goober mistake like that. But yelling at them, one, they, they've already experienced the pain of that mistake. They already, they've already felt the pain. They don't need more pain on top of that. Two, you're going to sever the ties between them and you. You're going to break the trust. If that team, I've, I've made mistakes like that before and then a team, my leader, not my team leader, my my depot manager has come to me and said like, oh, it's okay, we'll deal with this together. And oh my God, what a difference that makes. Yeah, exactly. You know, I want to say it may have been on your podcast, but there was a, I was listening to it and a guy was talking about, you know, leadership and communication. And he was saying that he was on a job site and he was running a big piece of equipment and he did something wrong. And it was to the point where it could have killed somebody. Like it very easily could have killed somebody. And the, the site manager was, was uh, overlooking him and, and, you know, he could have easily just screamed at him, you know, Mm. and just laid it into him and banished him from ever running that piece of equipment. And, you know, even fired him really. Cause it was, Mm -hmm. you know, if when you work with heavy machinery, you don't get a lot of chances to, to say, oops, um, he said that what, instead what that manager did was he quickly turned the machine off and says, okay, this is what happened. This is why 
we do it this way. Let me show you how this should have been done. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't embarrassing. It wasn't yelling. Now, the, the, the guy was shaking, of course, but it was <laughs> a teaching moment rather than a abusive moment. Yeah. And I, that actually reminds me of my chat with Jay Worth from Single Ops. That could have been that chat because, yeah, it's a similar sort of thing where, yeah, it's a it's a fork in the road where that relationship can go one of two ways. You can destroy the trust and you can make someone want to quit, even though they like they know they did the wrong thing. Or you can be a support mm -hmm. to them and be like, hey, that's not acceptable, obviously, but we're going to get through yeah. this together. This is my job is to help you out of situations like this because that is a team leader's job, isn't it? That's a leader's job. Yeah, exactly. I think you're. Yeah, I think you're right. That was that was the uh, the episode with Jay. But it was, you know, I listened to that and I was like, and yeah, that's, you're exactly right. You know, you can take a, take a moment like that and you can go two ways with it. You know, you can either learn from it or you can, again, be abusive mm -hmm. and, and go a completely different option with, uh, with how you want to treat it. So I'd like to move on now to family. So I yeah. think in nursery businesses, especially there's often like a family element to it. And this is the same with other farms, like other parts of agriculture. But how does the family factor play into leadership? Family is, at least in the U.S., I'm sure it's the same in Australia, but family makes up the majority of business owners. And even that, it makes up the majority of management within companies. You know, the, the premise is that this family member, you know them very well and that that they uh, have experience with the business, maybe they grew up in the business, but often people aren't hired based on their leadership skills. They're, <laughs> they're, they're hired because of tenure or because they are family. Mm. You know, they, it's, um, it's kind of a backwards way of thinking about it, but you know, sometimes the family members just aren't good leaders. You know, I've seen yeah. it firsthand and they, they wonder why they're not able to connect and relate uh, and retain quality people. And it's because they, they're not, they didn't focus on their, their leadership skills and how to communicate with people. You know, they, they're, they didn't see it from a, a whole, whole point of view. They were brought into the role and then they've, uh, they've stuck with it, but they didn't think about how it will affect the entire company. You know, I've seen companies that have had to examine their own family members within a business and they've had to fire their own family members. Oh no. You know, it is awkward. It was, oh yeah, it's, <laughs> it makes a great Thanksgiving dinner, but, uh, but no, it's, you know, and they, they fire that family member that was just bringing them way down and didn't bring anything valuable to the table. And they brought in someone with zero industry experience that, you know, didn't even know plants. I had no idea. He has the most brown thumb you've ever seen, <laughs> but he's the right person for the job. Mm. And, you know, almost doubles the revenue within three years. It's a completely different job to being on the tools. They, they are two different jobs. Yes, it's it's handy to have the horticultural knowledge and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, once you reach a certain level of management and leadership, 
you're no longer the one who's taking care of the plants. You can trust the knowledge of those trained horticulturists. Yeah. And then within family, I mean, it, it gets compounded because it's, it's someone that you know, and it's different when it's, let's say, a, you know, an uncle or a cousin. But let's talk about the relationship between a parent and a child. Yeah. Or, you know, and their, their children. You know, this parent, this the typically it's, you know, the founder of the company or, or the second generation, they have seen this child. They've raised this child. They've had to change their diapers. They've seen their temper tantrums. They have, you know, seen, they've had to raise them and develop this person. So whenever they come into the business, it's hard to disconnect that association of, you know, this snot-nosed kid that I used to change their diapers and I had to literally teach them how to walk to now running a company. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a really hard for them to, again, disconnect and connect that emotion with the expertise. Mm. I've had family members in middle management that were highly, highly capable, but the, the higher level managers just saw them as, you know, the cousin. Yeah. And they never gave him the opportunity to, to shine. Right. He was never invited to the table. Yeah. You know, there was a, a company that I had uh, interviewed uh, it was a few months ago. And the owner was wondering how to bring in his son to the business. And he was saying that his son was working full time and that he wants to bring it. He wants to give the business the next five years. He wants to retire. And uh, so I interviewed the, the son and the son was still living in the dad's basement. And he was getting paid, you know, 20, 30 percent less than everyone else was. And he was having to work two jobs just to afford this car note. So when you're talking about, you know, family relationships, you know, it was. You know, back in my day, I had to to earn my keep, and I had to to work hard, and and then I got the reward. But, you know, what is he teaching this kid that he can bust his butt and still have to live in his parents' basement? Do you think this individual was capable? Oh, of, yeah. of taking on that, like taking. So this is a different person to the person who was not a good leader. This is someone who's capable of taking that yeah. responsibility, but just because of the pecking order within the family, he just couldn't reach the level that he was worthy of reaching. Exactly. That's a, exactly. It was a very motivated and capable individual. Right. It was to the point where he was doing the majority of the work right. and he was doing, he was running the company, oh, but no. whenever there was big decisions to be made, uh, it was down to the, the dad and he never gave him any room to, to expand yeah. and to explore. And like I said, what's worse than that is that he wasn't, he couldn't afford, he was having to work at Domino's. To pay his car note, yeah. you know how you how can you expect to to build the next generation and to to teach him responsibility if if he's having to work to the bone and still have to have two jobs? Where's the where's the motivation coming from? Yeah, that's off our conversation today. It seems like emotion has a place and like this passion and the love and stuff like that, but we also have to use our brain you know, the logical part of our brain to filter some of these emotions and, and, you know, it, it's such a complex thing, isn't it? Is, is bridging the gap between those two parts of our brain. Yes. 
it's all about how it's applied. Mm. And again, it could be on it's on, on a spectrum, right? You can have very little emotion, mm. or you can have a huge level of emotion. But on both ends of the spectrum, something is being lost. And something is not being understood on either end of the spectrum. You've got to find the middle ground. You've got to figure out exactly how to apply it. You know, if you can to really dial it in and to have a a pinpoint accuracy on where to apply your emotion, that's when you see the great companies succeed. That's when yeah. you see a company transform is whenever they take that emotion and they apply it to one point. You know, they, you know, they have the analogy of, if figuring out where it hurts and then just poking it, just constantly poking <laughs> it. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, you can see the difference and there's tons of examples of, of companies that took that emotion and just precisely drove it, drove it exactly where their emotions led them. Mm. And then there's companies on the other ends of the spectrum where they didn't have any emotion. They were just in it for the money and there's, they had investors came in and, and now they, their company is just kind of floating. Mm. And then you have the other end where they're just super emotional and they, it's hindering how much they can get done because they, all their employees are looking at that emotion and they get gun shy Yeah, because there's so much emotion. They don't want to, to let the boss down and, they, and they're afraid of failure. Yeah. So it's, when you talk about emotion, it's all about how it gets applied and gets applied correctly. Yeah, totally. Well, speaking of application of emotion and logic, I'd like to move on to marketing now. So yeah. why, like what is marketing and why is it one of the biggest topics that people seem to, uh, you know, gloss over or um, I think sometimes they also uh, misunderstand the difference between marketing and advertising. Just, just they misunderstand just how broad marketing is. Can you tell us about marketing? Yep, exactly. And, that, and you're, you're exactly right. There's a huge confusion about what marketing actually is and what advertising is. So marketing, by definition, is summed up by identifying exactly who you're selling a product or service to, identifying their needs, and then understanding how you can be their solution. That's marketing, hmm. is understanding who you're selling it to, why they should care. Right. So if I'm selling ice, right, it's really hard to sell ice to Eskimos, <laughs> right? Because Eskimo doesn't have, they don't have a need for ice. Mm. That's right? where sales comes but, in. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, now sales is a conduit for marketing. But where mm -hmm. advertising comes in is advertising is a means of paid promotion to achieve your marketing strategy. Mm -hmm. So your your advertising is your trade shows and your website and things like that but if your website says that you cater to uh, landscape contractors but then your emails say that you focus on retail garden centers and then whenever you uh, make a cold call you say that actually i work with um, landscape architects you know you you're not marketing you're not identifying exactly who you're selling your product to and why they should choose you. You're not identifying their needs. You know, the, a landscaper that 
I'm working with, they're trying to figure out how to fit in their market. Mm. And we started talking about their jobs and what they what they get their most satisfaction from. And it turns out he makes the most money profit margins on seasonal refreshments. Right. He comes in in spring and fall and sometimes in summer. And he goes in and he edges the, your beds. He remulches, he mm. prunes, he fertilizes, um, and he makes your property look good. Uh, he comes in, goes out, and he's he's on. So he got we really focused on that. So we know okay, well we know that it's who we're selling to is a person that wants to have a nice yard, but isn't really worth isn't willing to invest that much time into putting mm-hmm. the the work in their yard. Mm-hmm. So in his case, we looked at his marketing strategies. Okay, well what neighborhood do you want to work in? And it was a you know middle upper class neighborhood. He's okay. Well, let's drive around. So we drove around together, and we figured out exactly who his customers were, because we looked at the minivan with the toys all through the yard, mm. and the guy that mows his own grass, but mm. maybe his hedges need a little trimming. You know, maybe he has a couple of dead bushes in the yard. Mm-hmm. You know, and we looked at this. Okay, there he is. There's your customer. Yeah. So whenever we talked about, you know, the market strategy on and if we're doing door to door, if we're leaving a flyer in his mailbox, we knew, okay, exactly where his paint points were. And we knew exactly how to to market to that that client avatar. Because mm-hmm. we understood who what we're do, what we're doing, what their what their needs are, and how you're the solution to their needs. That's brilliant. And then, the, and then the advertising was paying for the flyers to send in the neighborhood. Yeah, that's the advertising. The marketing is the brand strategy. I think we all have our gurus, and one of my gurus is Seth Godin, who's a marketing guy. He's written okay all the books on marketing, including Purple Cow, which is a great book, and this is marketing. Yeah. But he said marketing is basically just people like us do things like this. So when you're thinking about like your target audience, it's like I went to a workshop on um, for forestry or for arborists rather, and and it's like some of the questions that I asked were like, what sort of a phone do they have? Well, they've got a cracked screen, you know. <laughs> Mostly they've got cracked yeah. screens. Let's face it. Or you know, what do they do on a Friday afternoon? Well, they're probably going to en- a fair chunk of them are going to enjoy a beer in the pub on a Friday afternoon with their buddies or with their workmates. So it's like once you start to understand that people like us do things like this, then you yep. can speak to those people who are doing those things and you can help them do those things. Yeah. Where are your customers? I was mm. talking to a, a landscape designer out of New York and uh, he was explaining exactly how he did that. And, Cause I was asking him questions about advertising and, and how, where he found the most effective, whether it's LinkedIn or uh, even newspapers. And he, he was telling me that uh, he knew where his client, what clients he wanted. And he realized that a lot of them were country club members. Right. So he huh. spent time there at the country go. club. <laughs> he learned tennis because that's where his clients were. You know, he would hang out at the clubhouse all day. And yeah. talk to people, and just to just to market himself, 
you know, he wouldn't p- play for a round of golf, but he would go and he would just talk to people. Yeah. Because that's where his clients were. You have to be where your clients are. Yeah, that's brilliant. So how do you specifically help your clients with their marketing? I spend a lot of time with businesses trying to define define mostly with their why and their purpose. Because that's where it has to start. You know, you have to ask a very simple question. And again, why should your customer care to choose you? You know, maybe it is. And here's the fun thing. The, uh, the number one question that I get when I ask them what differentiates their business from others is they always tell me, well, we have better quality yeah. and we have better service. <laughs> Every single they one of them. They all say that. <laughs> they all say that. And so the fun thing is I say, okay, what about your customer service is better than the next person? Yeah. And they just kind of stare at you. Well, uh, uh, we, uh, we answer the phones. Okay. Well, everyone has a phone. So yeah, but we actually answer ours. Okay. So do other 500 people answer their phone. So how is your service better? You know, why should your customer care? If five people pick up the phone, mm. why does your customer service better? That's the bare minimum. <laughs> well, you say it's the bare minimum. I, so part of what I do is I do uh, sourcing. I help people find vendors and find the plants. And wow. the month of May, I called over 400 nurseries in one state. Mm-hmm. And do you know how many of them never picked up the phone oh, and never called me back? I don't even want to know. Do so I? when you say the bare minimum, dude, <laughs> it is just answering the phone. You're already got points in my book. Wow. So, but yeah, it's, it's exactly that. You know, they say, uh, it's our, it's our quality. Okay. Well, what about your quality? Where our plants are, are better. Well, okay. Well, how are they better? And I'll, I'll kind of badger them like that. I was like, okay, well, why? Mm. Well, why? Well, why is that? Why is that? And they, they finally have to give me an actual tangible reason why their quality is better. Mm. And why their customer service? Well, it's because every single order, we send out a confirmation with a picture file of your order. And we hand check every order as it, as it gets led. We hand tag. Um, we have a less than 0.0% five percent rate of uh, returns on quality issues mm. okay that's where that's where your quality is yeah you can't just say you have better quality you have to give me a reason mm. you have to tell me why your quality is better uh, i read uh the Hort journal yeah. and there was a, a headline from one of the vendors and it was uh it was an ad for an environmental sensor and it was a, a it was a static ad. It was a, it was a, a magazine, mm-hmm. and the the big bold words on top was "inform, grow, yield" for an environmental sensor. Mm-hmm. Instantly, instantly, you know what value that product can provide for mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. You knew instantly the why of their business. They're going to inform you. They're going to help you grow, and they're going to improve your yield. Mm-hmm. And you knew that instantly with three words. Yeah. So it instantly answered the why, why their company differentiates from others, mm. because they focus on informing, on growing, and on your yield. Mm-hmm. And they can they can communicate that in three simple words. In three words. Yeah. And that is Brilliant. marketing. That is understanding your market, and that's understanding what their pain points are and how you're going to leave them. Well, for nurseries, we can even go down the niche route. So it's like, have a look in your city 
how many people are doing native plants? There's probably a few of them, but then how many of them are doing carnivorous plants? So it's like some people really love their carnivorous plants and they're going to come back again and again and again. And then there are going to be forums on carnivorous plants. And then eventually you build that brand awareness as the carnivorous plant nursery in your city. Yes. And that's, that's exactly it. You know, you have to, to figure out what that piece of the puzzle is. Mm. You have to figure out what your value proposition is and where your strengths are. And you've got to lean on it heavy. Mm. You know, if, if this is part of your business, then make it your business. You know, I'm talking to, yeah. to one nursery that has a uh, intellectual property aspect to their business. And they're kind of going about it passively. They say, oh, yeah, well, we also offer offer this thing that we developed ourselves. And actually, it works way better than these other uh, this other product. And it in, increases your yield and the quality and the, the time it takes to, to root out. Uh, and, yeah, you know, th- we get this as an option as well. <laughs> it's, wait, wait, hold on. Wait, it does all these things and it's just another offering? No, let's let's put this in the forefront. Let's hang this from the banners. Let's shout it from the rooftop. Mm-hmm. If it can actually do these things, then why is this not the the first thing that you talk about whenever someone asks you what you do for your business? Like that's that's marketing. So figure out what you're good at and what what message you want to present to the market, and lean on that message. So is that the secret matrix? Then is it between you know what you're good at and what people want? Like is that and and how you can communicate that to the people who want it? Like is that what marketing is pretty much? Oh yeah. So like in the nursery that I grew up in, we were surrounded by, you know, hundreds of nurseries that all offered pretty much 80%. We all offer the same items. Yeah. Right. So I had to figure out how to differentiate myself and what is it, why they should care to, to choose my company over another's. And I was at a position where my product was, you know, five to 15% more expensive than everyone else. And, you know, it was one thing for me just to say that I had higher quality, but I had to prove it to them. Mm. So how did I do that? You know, you have to figure out how to apply that, that marketing message. You know, I, you have to apply one. I can't just say that I have better quality service. I have to prove to you. I'm going to do that. I did it twofold. You know, if I had to prove that I had the best quality and the best service, I would send you multiple pictures. I would take the pot, the plant out of the pot and I'll flip the pot upside down. I put the roots on top of the pot and I would step back and I would angle the picture to where you could see, see it perfectly. It wasn't lost in the background and it was on a good backdrop. And I would take a high quality photo of, of what your plant was, especially if there was something that was particular for specs. I'd have a ruler in it. Every single picture had a ruler, no matter what, every single picture, because that's how I told my customers that, we have a great product because you can physically see it with the measurements. And that's how I told them I have better quality service, customer service, because I'm willing to go out and take pictures of anything and everything. Yeah, I see. And if you're going down the quality route, I guess you're probably going to have to invest in the higher quality ute. You know, you have to keep it clean. You're going to have to make sure that, um, you know, your signage isn't flaking off the building because all of those are sending signals that it's actually a low cost item that you're selling. Yep. And that's the passive information, mm. right? So when we're talking about it, it's, there's three things that, that build a foundation of your business. 
It is your price, your quality, and your customer service. Mm. The stronger those are with both the active information and the passive information, the stronger they are, the higher you can build your business on top of that foundation. So if that's going to be part of your marketing and part of your strategy, then you have to build that. You have to make it strong because it, it all plays together. If you don't have, if you have a great price, but you don't have good service or a good customer service or don't have good quality, if any one of those fails, then, then you're, you might as well not have a good product. You might, have, might as well not have a good price. It's incongruent branding. Yeah, exactly. All three of those things have to, to be there. You can survive on two of them being really strong and the third one being present. But you can only build that your business so tall on that foundation before that weak leg gives out. And I just want to add as well, by the way, you don't actually have to have great customer service. Like, to be honest, there's actually a tactic in not offering customer service, basically, if you're a really cheap option. So, you know, oh, yeah. like so, some of your customers will want to save money and, and they they know they don't need customer service and they just know to expect yep. that they're going to get really bad customer service from you, but they're willing to make that sacrifice because yep. you're cheap. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that is very true in the nursery business. Again, it doesn't take a, a good nursery to grow a decent plant. Mm. And there are 100% nurseries that just play the numbers. Mm. You know, they just throw massive quantities out. They never fertilize it, never trim it. <laughs> and they sell it super cheap and it's companies that they they will tell you on their website in black and white actually i think their letters are blue but the uh <laughs> they say very plainly they say if you are looking for the best quality we are not your people <laughs> if you are looking for 5001 gallons delivered tomorrow call yeah. me yeah they know who they are Yes. And that, but that, again, it, that is their brand. That is their marketing. You know, that is, that is their, their value proposition and they're leaning on it so much. So they yeah. put it on their website. <laughs> Do not call me if you want good quality. <laughs> call me if you want good price and you want a bunch of them. Yeah. And how much does that go towards building trust? Just that self-awareness. Man, it is. If you can be self-aware of that and be self-aware enough to, to use it, I mean, it's, it's leverage. It is yeah. very powerful. It is building businesses that cannot keep up with how fast they're growing Yeah, because they are so focused on what direction they're going and what value they provide that it is the perfect little storm mm. of, of growth. But again, because they're very focused and diligent about exactly where they put that pressure mm-hmm. and where they put their efforts. You know, when someone calls that, that nursery with a quality complaint, it falls on deaf ears, mm-hmm. you know, but yeah. again, that's not, that's not their leverage. No, we told you on the website, <laughs> we told you exactly what yeah. to expect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's, it's there, you know, we're not your guy if you're looking for quality. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and you need to go up the street to Smiths and Sons if you want the higher quality, and you're going to pay three times yeah. as much. Hmm. Exactly, and yeah, and this is this is a nursery that I mean, it, they have tons of nurseries in this little area. I mean, it's one of the highest producing horticulture states in the U.S. 
and they're surrounded by nurseries and they are blowing and going because they've leaned on that value proposition. Well, I think that we've touched on communication, leadership, and marketing. So those are three of the pillars. But there's one more pillar that we have to talk about, and that's technical. So what are some of the technical tasks that you like to work with businesses on? Yeah, so again, with my the way I, I look at you know my consulting is I, I work on a 60-40 concept. Sometimes it's 70-30, but it typically is about 60-40 with depending the development, and that's leadership, communication, and marketing, and then the other smaller percentages, the technical. And technical is the actual things that you can implement um, to make a difference in your product and in your communication. So like in the communication, the technical side of it, it would be uh, software. Right in the production planning, it is um, maybe a a piece of equipment or a process. You know, developing that as the technical side of it. Because whenever I first started this, I didn't want to go about things with the accountant perspective. And because an accountant can look at your books, and he can tell you where your problems are. He can tell you you're spending too much on this and and that you have way too much uh, debt in this column, but he can't actually tell you how to fix it. <laughs> so that's where the 40% comes in is I don't just tell you, you know, what your problems are. I work with you on how to fix it. You know, you get a whole nother employee that you can work through and, and I'll make introductions for you and I'll, I'll help you actually build these things and, you know, hold myself accountable with that again with that, offer a 100% guarantee that if, if I don't present some kind of value to you, then, you know, why am I here? And that, that comes with a technical side of it because I offer a quantitative way to look at that. So if I'm working with someone on production planning, you know, I get a base from where they are and I say, okay, um, we have improved your, your production by this much, or we have improved your sales by this much. Um, so like the topics that are most technical that I work on are, are data for one, just understanding and gaining your numbers. Uh, I talk to people about sales training, the the art of selling, talk about production planning, software. Um, I even work with people on trade shows with booth strategy, you know, how to actually present your booth and your information in a way and how to have conversations to gain the most out of a trade show. So it's it's all different types of of technical information that can be applied. Absolutely. Look, we could definitely spend a whole episode on each of these, like data, sales training, production planning, oh, yeah. facility the effectiveness. I mean, we, yep. those are all, yeah, huge topics. But I, I think I just want to ask you just a couple more questions yeah. before we wrap this episode up. This is one of the longer episodes that we've done. So this is fantastic, but there's just so much juice in it. And I hope I get a chance to interview you on some of these other topics too. But you did write an awesome article for the Hort Journal in Australia, Hort Journal Australia, and you presented a couple of webinars as well on booth strategy. Now, this is a big part of the industry. I'm guessing in the US just as much as it is in Australia. These trade shows, they're big business. So 
What tips do you have for people who are looking for an effective booth strategy? Yes, and you're exactly right. It's a huge part of it because in, especially in our industry, it is often you don't have a lot of time to present your product and not a lot of time people have time to go out to your businesses and take tours. Mm. Um, and you don't always have time to send a sales rep out into the wilderness and to find new customers. So majority of the year outside of the three, four days of a trade show, it's a very disconnected experience between the provider and the client and the customer. Mm. And I mean, I've been to trade shows for years now, and I've always heard that trade shows are dying. And it's not true. It's not <laughs> dying in the sense that people are finding alternate ways to find businesses, which I mean, is definitely a part of it. It's, it's easier now to find information uh, than ever before. But no, it's these businesses have spent tons of money on huge booths and they fall short on justifying why they should be there. And I break that into to two categories, ROI and ROI. So you have <laughs> return on investment. So whenever you leave and whenever you're looking back at the trade show, you have to be able to justify that you gained enough value of being there. You gain more value of being there than not being there. Mm. You know, if it costs you thousands of dollars to have this booth and to send you in the, in the food and the, 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 uh, the booth and the hotel bill and the drinks, you know, it's really expensive. Yeah. But at the end of the day, if you can't say that you gained customers or you connected with someone uh, or you learned something at the education, then you can't prove that you had a return on investment. Yeah. And then the second ROI is really how to bring it all together. It's recall of information. Ah. I mean, it's, so recall of information because with trade shows, you have the most condensed per square foot of information in the entire industry. Oh, good. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much information in within those walls. Mm -hmm. Your brain is overloaded. Mm absolutely overloaded not only just seeing everyone's booth but talking to people and having the conversation your brain is flipped on to sales mode or to management mode or, or to learning mode and your brain gets overloaded it has to filter out it cannot keep up with everything so recalling information is the easiest way for someone to to gain value at a trade show you know for me it was i started by having a little small notebook that uh, that I wrote down notes and I had it in my front pocket. Every time I'd, I'd walk past the booth, I have an idea or, you know, an aha moment. I would write those that down. That way, after the trade show, I could look back at those conversations and I could, I could remember, oh, yeah, you know, that guy, he talked about how he wanted a whole truckload, but he also wanted me to send pictures of that one plant. So I wouldn't let that slip by. I'd be able to recall the information and, you know, with, uh, business cards. If I had a conversation with someone, I wasn't going to let them walk away without me giving them information and me getting information. Yeah. So I'd get their business card. And as soon as we shook hands and said goodbye, I would write down that, that card. I'd say, Hey, this is what we talked about. He's got two kids. Mm. Uh, he is 
he just graduated. Uh, he just got a certification in this and he wants to bring on more natives. And, you know, this is what I need to talk to him about. Because at the end of it, rather than sending out a, a blanket email to everyone, I can have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with just him and what he, what he wanted out of the conversation. And then when I gave him my card, I would take time to, to take up my card and I would write on it what we talked about. Uh, if, I, if he pointed out the quality of my three-gallon hollies, I would say, uh, you know, grade A uh, three-gallon <laughs> hollies, and I would give it to him. That way, it wasn't just a name and a logo. He knew exactly what value that we mm. talked about. And he remembers the connection. Yep. And, I mean, it was that little, the passing of cards and the information, you know, you have your availability, your little catalogs, always write something on it. Mm. Even just, you know, just something small about the conversation. Mm. Um, if he complains about the freight rates, you know, right on the on the catalog and say, let's work together on bringing down your freight rates. You know, just something, because you know that's his pain point. You have to prove why you're a solution to his pain point. And then, so I mean, in the last recent years, last few years, I've gone to trade shows. This has turned into me. I have a a voice recorder that I keep in my pocket, and after a trade show, because I have horrible handwriting. So for me to write through my, look through my notes at the end of a trade show to remember what I wrote down and to actually be able to legibly read it, it was, uh, it was hard. So I, uh, I have a voice recorder now and after a, a conversation, I'll turn it on with a flip of a switch and I'll jot down the key notes and what we talked about. And at the end of the show, what I can do is I can look back on that voice note and I can know who I talked to, what his company was, all these notes with my own voice saying it rather than me trying to remember it or type it into an app. Yeah, that's good. My mentor, Karen Smith, who's the editor for the Hort Journal, actually told me that one too. I used to just take business cards and then you get home and you'd be like, what am I going to do with all these business cards? I, I don't even remember who you are. So you just write a couple of sentences down and that's that's a brilliant way to do it. Yes. Because again, you have to to relate that emotion. If there was an emotional connection during that meeting, if they can't remember it, then that connect, connection may have never happened. Yeah. So I want to go back to the the first kind of ROI, which is a return on investment. Mm -hmm. Companies, I think a lot of the time, you know, this is hard to track. Someone seeing your brand and then coming in to buy from you six months later. They're not going to tell you that they saw you at the at the um, trade show. It's not like when you click on a Google ad that can be tracked. So the ROI, it's it's very much a branding thing. And when I talk to a lot of companies, at least in Australia, when they're at trade booths, I say like, "Well, why are you here?" And they say stuff like, "We're flying the flag. We just got to come here every year and fly this yep. flag every single year because we know this is where our customers are." and they know that they can't track these things like they can on other marketing methods, but it's still worthwhile to do it because it still does convert in the long run. Yes. And that's, I call it market relevance. They're just yeah, there right. to say that they're there. Yeah. And nothing, it speaks way more the year that you aren't there <laughs> than the year that the first year you're there. <laughs> right. The year that that big dog is, is no longer there. They don't have a booth. 
that says way more because then they're saying, oh, well, <laughs> uh, wonder what happened to the Sozo. Yeah. You know, that's it's a market really relevance. Point. But yeah. where the biggest mistake is, is you not using that as an opportunity. Mm. Because maybe maybe it is just for market relevance, but try and try and still have some passion about it. Yeah. Because if you're if you don't have passion about it, then your sales reps are just gonna show up. And I've been to mm. too many trade shows where the sales reps are just sitting in the booths and you walk up and they don't want to talk to you and they're just there mm-hmm. because someone told them that they had to be there. Yeah, they're on the clock. Yep. And that's where that business says to the the association manager that says, yeah, these shows just aren't worth it anymore. We're just not getting sales anymore. <laughs> you know, no, no, that's, that's not why. It's because you have two sticks in the mud sitting in your booth yeah. that each took an hour long break or hour long lunch. And, and then they didn't have any information on the booth. You know, there's reasons why they, and you know, there's, it's so easy when I teach people booth strategy, it's so easy for me to help them steer customers away from those companies. I don't care how big the company is and what their value proposition is. If they're just there for market relevance, yeah. I can guarantee you I can produce some magic for a different company yeah. or a similar company just because they have a little bit of passion. Passion again. There comes that word again. That's a golden buzzword. Yep. And again, it's passion pa- applied. Yeah. It's applied and it's not something that comes from the heavens for everybody. I know that like I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't born loving horticulture. That was something that I decided to to really start being passionate about. And it's just like a valve inside of your, it's going to sound so corny. It's like a valve inside your heart that you can open and just let it out. Like it's just like a different mode of being to be passionate or not to be passionate. Um, sorry if that's really cringy to say that. Yeah, no, I get it. I mean, I, I was, I have the same thing because I, I hated it. I hated the industry because you know, it was hot summers and cold winters, you know, blood, sweat, and tears and, and the whole works. And, but I, when you start making the connection that you're really good at it and you have people that are willing to invest in you and, and, uh, and you, you form that passion and you, you kind of, you get the fire underneath you. It kind of puts all that into your perspective. Mm. And it's, it's a different feeling whenever you, you know what you like and then you know what you love, you know, and that's why whenever I'm talking to someone is, you know, I say that, you know, I, you know first and foremost, I'm a husband and a father, but second, I, I'm a, I'm a resource for the green industry and I'm an advocate. I'm a green industry advocate because mm. it's something that I love. I love the people of the community. Mm. Um, you know, I had the, the option to, to leave the green industry for construction and man, the people is, we're just we're very rigid and I can't okay. talk to, I can't talk to a, a, an accountant like I can the farmer down the road. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's just different. And that's the, it's the people that I love and that's the, the industry that I, I want to be a part of and surrounded by. And I want to help others in the industry. You know, I've, I've uh, had the conversation with a couple of, of associations that I'm, I'm doing, you know, pro bono work just because, Man, I, I really want to see the industry do better, and I want to I want to help it because 
you know, at least in the U.S., we don't get as much recognition for how important our industry is. And it's because for so long, we've just stuck our nose down and done the work and, you know, kind of gotten taken advantage of. Yeah, and then other people, the weekend gardeners and the armchair experts get to get up on their high horse and say what we should and what we shouldn't be doing. And it's the same in agriculture. It's a lot worse in agriculture, I think, where it's like because they don't communicate and because we don't communicate, that doesn't mean that a conversation isn't happening. It just means that we're not part of it. Yeah, and that's that's such a big part of it. And, you know, I help one of the things that I'm really trying to, to work on is the governmental involvement with the horticulture mm. industry of understanding how to apply it correctly and to understand the, that, you know, you can't just put a tree in there and, and get good results. You have to put the right tree there yeah. and you can't have someone plant that tree that has no idea what he's doing because then what's going to happen is that tree is going to fail it's yeah. going to fall on a car and the next per that person sues the, the city and the city decides, Oh, we'll rip up all the trees. <laughs> you know, so I'm trying to, to get yeah. more on the governmental side of it to, to be recognized as far as the importance of the industry. Mm. And, uh, and again, just being part of that, the advocacy for, you know, why we matter. Uh, it's, it's, it's a task. It really is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So, Rain, at the end of every episode, I always like to ask guests one final question. Is there anything else that you'd like the listeners to know about? Yeah, so, you know, when we're talking about all these big topics, what you have to remember is that your business is, is a huge, complex puzzle, right? All these these pieces make up every aspect of your business. And... If one piece of the puzzle is missing or damaged, you'll work tirelessly to try and complete that puzzle. You know, it's it all has to work. And all the pieces have to be there or you're always going to be limited on what you can what you can see. And that, that pretty picture that you're trying to put together, it'll never be there. So you have to look at each piece and look at how to, to use each piece correctly. You can't just put put pieces in different areas. You've got to use it correctly. And, and really that's, that's the ideology that, that I use for each of the business that I work with is how to take each of these pieces and improve and use each piece correctly and make sure that all the pieces are there, especially within those three pillars. I mean, there's a bunch of subtopics within each of those and we could have hours long conversations on each of them, but just to recognize that each piece is there for a reason. And that's, that's really what it, what it is. You know, I, I started this business to be a resource for the green industry and for nurseries, because when I needed a resource, it was hard to find, you know, there were a lot of books on, on uh, process improvement and, and strategy and things like that, but there's very little on that actually applied to the horticulture industry. So it was, it's a passion project for me. And, and I, I really hope to, to uh, be able to help someone out there listening to this, that, you know, you're, you're not alone, that there are people out there for you. And there's great people at the Hort Journal and, and through different podcasts like this that, that can help you. 
you know, that's, that's the biggest thing is that don't feel like you're alone. And there are people that can help you out there to help you with this journey and help build your business. So Rain, do you work with people in Australia or would, is it just US based that you work in? I'm US based, but because of the the method that I work on being both developmental and technical, uh, I'm open to to work anywhere. Uh, I would love the opportunity to to go outside of the United States. Um, I'm looking toward working in a with a company out of Quebec uh, here next spring, and I'm open to to experiencing Australian horticulture. Uh, so I'm not limited by where I go. Um, and the cultural side of it, that is, uh, I offer coaching, uh, leadership coaching at all levels with an individual or with a company team. Uh, and that can be done, uh, remotely. So anywhere in the world I can, I can help, help businesses. I love that because, yes, there's going to be different legislation between different countries, but at the end of the day, we're all humans and we all exactly. have that same wiring. Yes, and we all have the desire to, to need and feel wanted and to feel mm. purposeful and to feel intact. So, I mean, that's it's, uh, it's part psychology applied to business, mm. and it's so important. Um, and that's where you see the, the businesses really thriving are the ones that, that focus in on that. Yeah. Well, we're going to have some links in the show notes if you'd like to work with Rain. Thanks so much for a great chat, mate. Yeah, thank you, man. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it was really very in-depth, and I, I think people are going to get a lot out of that, particularly people who are in the nursery industry. But I, I think a lot of what we talked about is going to be applicable to people in any industry, really, but whether you're in maintenance, whether you're in construction, landscaping, there's just the, these principles are so so universal in a way exactly and i'm trying to make it as accessible as possible um, i do a lot of work on on linkedin and i'm writing blogs for my website and i'm also in the process of writing a couple of short uh guidebooks uh you know 100 to 200 pages tops um, on how to take these ideas and actually apply it with examples of businesses that I've helped with, with real examples of different areas, whether it be the technical side of things or the cultural developmental, um, just so you can take it and you can take it home and you can try and apply it yourself. Mm -hmm. um, again, just trying to be that resource. Mm. Well, that's how I found you on LinkedIn. Just uh, I found your posts incredibly informative. And then, you know, you've done some stuff for the Hort Journal and for the AIH magazine as well. Um, I believe that that was published, wasn't it, in the AIH magazine? Yeah, it's a, yeah. a few publishments uh, through the Australian Horror Journal and a couple other places uh, internationally, and uh, as well as you know doing education sessions through associations. Uh, I found a, a really, really good enjoyment out of doing that and be able to reach people yeah. uh, through through webinars and through education sessions. You're one of the good ones, mate. Thanks for your time. I uh, appreciate it. And thanks for having me. If you ever want to uh, talk further, by all means, give me a shout. You can reach out to Rain on LinkedIn or through the contact page on taprootshc.com. Have a chat with him about business or leadership or just connect with him if you're looking to invite winners into your circle. 
If you're new to this podcast and you like what you heard, follow and subscribe to the Plants Grow Here podcast on your favourite listening app. We mainly focus on technical horticulture information as well as industry career stuff, and occasionally we talk about business development. The next episode to listen to after this one would probably be episode 87, Landscape Business Coaching with John Corbin, or maybe episode 146, Workplace Culture, How to Retain Staff with Jay Worth. Or maybe another episode will catch your eye as you scroll through the back catalogue with episodes like Integrated Weed Management, History of Lawns, and What is Green Infrastructure?